Welcome back to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast. Joining me in studio today, Jason Schechterly, survivor, cop, badass guy all the way around, and uh, quite the uh, frequent guest of many podcasts. I'm, I'm his first of, of two today, and <laughs> he's going to be a busy, busy guy, so you're going to have the opportunity to hear Jason in a couple other areas. Jason, how's things been, man? Oh, couldn't be better. Couldn't Thank be better. Thank you very Good. much we got, for having me. got some decent weather out here. I appreciate you coming on, man. If uh, yeah. Those of you who, if you grew up in Arizona, um, especially in the Phoenix metro area like I did, you know Jason's story. Uh, I was in uh, fifth grade uh, when when Jason was in his uh, collision, rear-ended by a taxi cab, and his uh, Crown Victoria basically exploded around you. Uh, and uh, uh, interestingly enough, later on, uh, I think, did you end up, was there was there court proceedings? Oh, yeah. With but, that guy? Uh, two sides. There were... Uh a criminal proceeding for the guy who hit me. Right. And then the civil proceeding to try and get the Crown Victorias made safer because, you know, you guys lost yep, an officer. We lost also. an officer to a Crown Vic lost, as well. Lost two D- DPS officers. And, uh, you know, we were kind of ground zero for the span of four years. Sure. So, uh, yeah, there were quite a few uh, battles. The uh, If uh, one of my lieutenants is listening to this, when he was a, when he was a fucking new guy, he, uh, our, our crown Vicks had just been retrofitted with their fire extinguishers and he's cleaning his car. He's on FTO and he basically detonates that fire extinguisher in the parking garage. Nice. And, uh, and so this is why they promoted him. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. exactly that's, why. that's why he made Lieutenant ultimately <laughs> Jason. If you're li- his name's Jason. Also, Jason, if you're listening to this, yeah, way I love to you, go. Man. don't fire me. Uh, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> uh, Jason, I give, uh, we're going to get into the accident. That's, that's a big sure. part of the conversation, but I give, uh, give my guests the opportunity to discuss uh, nonprofits that they want to shout out, and you want to give a big shout out to the 100 Club of Arizona. Definitely, uh, absolutely love the 100 Club. Do a lot of work with them. They uh, were so good to my family, uh, starting with the night of the accident, and then as I started to heal and got more involved and see that the work that they do, and it can, and that's actually the next podcast that I'm doing this afternoon is with the hunter club and my youngest son gets to be nice. on it nice. with me. He's so stoked. He's never done a podcast. Sure. You know, he's 18 years old and he'll probably get all tongue tied, but yeah, Angela Harrell and all the folks at the hunter club, what they do in this state. And it's not just about when you get killed or injured in the line of duty. They're out there. They're giving money to smaller departments, making sure they've got vests, cameras, whatever training they need. If you need anything, you can call the hunter club and, they're going to be there. It's not just about when you get hurt or killed, which is usually what people think of. Right. But yeah, I can't say enough about the hunter club and hopefully everybody, I mean, you can be a member for 150 bucks a year. That's, that's all it is. That's not a, not a hard check to write because at some point in your career, hopefully not you, but somebody, you know, is going to need them. Right. And you'll see, they're just a, an incredible organization. Well, and you divvy out 150 bucks over the course of seven days a Dude, week. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, you spend on more coffee. money than that. Yeah. On, on yeah. coffee. Okay. Exactly. Click going to Starbucks for a month and yeah. you can, you can, you can pay don't, that. You can pay the, and get your little membership card, put your sticker on the back of your car and just be proud. Uh, you know, I have the license plate. Yep. As uh, do I, as yeah. you, as you do. And, uh, it's just a beautiful organization. Yeah. Yeah. If you like that, if you're in Arizona, uh, you go on to servicearizona.org, uh, and not to plug the DMV, we all get frustrated with them at some point in time or another, but, uh, you go onto their website and order up one of those, uh, hundred club. It's a pretty, pretty badass license plate. All things badass considered. License plate Subdued American flag. Dark. And, and yeah, yeah, the red and, and blue you know, I'm, I'm wearing the hat. You're wearing the shirt right, right. now. So, yeah. uh, we we're, it's on display all the time, but it's very cool to have, uh, plus it probably helps if we get pulled over. It does. It yeah. does indeed. Instead uh, of just right away throwing down the, Hey, I'm a, I'm a yeah, cop. Hey, you could man. just, you could just feel like, 
dude, you saw my license yeah. plate, right? <laughs> oh, my commission card. I'm sorry. I got that mixed up with my driver's license. I did that to a motor. I didn't do, I wasn't that much of an asshole. I did that to a motor like, I don't know, three months ago. My son and I are on our way back from getting donuts. Just, just tootling along at 50 miles an hour northbound and uh, going to a school zone. And I, I know the school zones there. It just was like a lapse. I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. And I look at him and he's in the bushes, you know, like some sort of like motor oh, sniper. Yeah, dude. I'm pretty sure he's glued leaves to his helmet um, so that you can't see him. And he puts his LIDAR away, whips around. And I'm like, well, fuck, that's me. Yeah. And I pull myself over. And it's just because I was carrying a gun, at the, as I always do. But like, hey, man, I'm not being an asshole handing you my commission card. But just so you know, I'm armed, but I am like, I'm also a police officer, so you can feel safe. And he was like, oh, OK, cool, man. Here you go. See you later. I'm like, oh, well, that was nice. Well, that's kind of nice because I always tell people, dude, motors will write their own mobs tickets. Those, oh, yeah. They have nothing else to do. And uh, I love those guys so much because yeah. you talk about a there's a lot of specialty details in law enforcement, oh, yeah. but to be a motor, once you're in it, if you want to do that, they, these guys do it for 15, 20 years without, without stopping. Oh, yeah. I, I love them. I especially loved them when I'd pull up like, you know, Hey, I got a, a DUI 390 D in, in Phoenix and a motor would jump on. I'll take it. I'm like, thank God. Cause yeah. it's, that's a three hour oh, thank deal. You, they can do it like 20 <laughs> minutes. Cause they're so good. It would take oh, yeah, me three 100%. hours. Yeah. So I, I sit staring down the barrel of a DUI investigation. I'm like, I ah, love our motors. Damn it. They're uh, awesome. Yeah. Motors. Big shout out to our motors yeah, out there. Time. You guys, you guys are real MVPs. We do appreciate the yeah. hell out of you. And you come out when it's 115 and take our collision investigation. Exactly. Let us go back and let us go back and, and service. Have more fun. Yep. We don't want to do. I don't want to do a crash I don't want to do traffic. No, I didn't sign up. I didn't sign up for traffic. I had a guy ask me on a, a civil traffic hearing, and he goes, "Well, you didn't document or diagram the collision, uh, like with actual measurements." I'm like, "No, that's why there's a box at the top that says not to scale because that's not my job." <laughs> yeah, that's so not my job. That's not where I. You're dive lucky into I chose it. the right color crayons, dude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we're, honestly, you're lucky that you can tell it's a street. <laughs> And, and my traffic template has a little like stick figure car. Yeah. Otherwise you'd be like, what in the hell? Yeah. Is this like a Jackson Pollock painting? What is this man? I was more like here, these two cars hit each other and this is who's at fault. Yeah. I, I'm, can I go back to, yeah. and this is, uh, anyways, here's your ticket and I'll see you guys later. I can't wait for the court, you know, three hours of overtime for me. Yay. Exactly. Exactly. Make sure you show up. Yeah. Make sure you show up. Your license is going to get suspended. <laughs> or if you don't show up, I still get three you hours still of pay. Get three hours. And I don't have to sit And there. I have to come back and look for you again. I, job security. Yeah. So that's okay. It's a, it's a cyclic it's route. Okay. Um, there are, uh, to the listener, there's uh, the HOA, who I spend a god-awful amount of money with every quarter, is uh, is doing the the lawn out front. So you guys are probably going to hear the lawnmowers. Oh. It's all part of life it's all part of life yes, all part good. of that hoa life and if That's you don't what makes live, these podcasts great though they make them real like yeah. hey we're, we're sitting at home and guys out there cutting the grass yeah and, thank, and you know what i'm glad he's doing it i'm glad he's cutting it, the grass it looks beautiful exactly it'll look nice and yeah. i'm not gonna have so many beautiful. freaking weeds i kind of almost yard. ran him over when i pulled up i felt bad yeah that's okay yeah, yeah. i was do, so i used to do weed control work before i was a cop oh, okay and i'm down in some uh like some industrial park and they've got guys out there mowing the grass too on one of the riding mowers with like the fighter oh, yeah. fighter jet joysticks <laughs> type of thing and he proceed he's not paying attention and i'm Fairly certain he was texting and mowing, um, and he uh, dumps his lawnmower into one of the little man-made lakes. Nice. And we're like, ugh. Did you save him? Uh, his other guys pulled the F-150 up and, uh, and texting and mowing. Texting That's, and mowing. I, I can tell you, I've never heard that yeah. before. That's a good one. Yeah, you try and find a Title so 28 traffic say, violation let's see if we for get that. that in Title 28. I'm, <laughs> I'm teaching at the academy in a couple weeks. I'm going to have to see if I can, uh, yeah, convince uh, convince the latest recruits that. 
that's a that's a new one. You can write a ticket for that. Yeah, there you go. You can write a ticket. We'll we'll get uh, get the legislation on the phone. We need to get Title Twenty Eight updated over here. Title Twenty Eight is Arizona's oh traffic law. So We're having too much fun. Already. My 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 listeners in Brazil may not know what Title Twenty Eight <laughs> is, but I'm sure they have something similar to it. Uh, so, Jason, uh, what led you down the road, man? Like, did you grow up in Phoenix or did you grow up elsewhere? Where are you from? No, born and raised. Born and raised. Born Phoenix. and raised here. Yeah. Got Phoenician, it. Uh, 48 years old now, and can't believe I'm getting ready to go through another summer here. Oh, yeah. Jeez. We always say never again. Dude. And then here we are. It starts to wear on you. But yeah, born and raised here. Born and raised Phoenix. Yeah. Um, what high school did you go to? Independence High School. I grew up, I actually grew up on some horse property way out by Phoenix International Raceway. Okay. Uh, loved it. And then for some reason, I'm the baby of, the, of three. Sure. And my mom got a bright idea to move more into the city and go to this new high school uh, at 75th Avenue, just north of Bethany Home Road in Glendale. And and it was cool. I mean, I was a, a kid of the 80s and wouldn't change a, sure. a thing. Uh, so I went to Independence High School, and and I mean it's definitely not now uh, what it used to be. Right, um, it's kind of become a rougher part of sure, sure. Glendale, but uh, I'm very happy I went there. Graduated in 1990. Right on, yeah. 1990. Not to make you yeah. not trying to be well, an dude, asshole. You already made when you said you were in fifth grade when I got <laughs> my action. I was like. Are you serious? I was, right I now? was born in 1990. Fifth grade, <laughs> Jesus. Well, and, and like 11. And I asked about the court because, uh, in actually, I think I was. Let's see. Mm, yeah. Oh shit! Now I can't even remember. Like <laughs> how when you're 11 or 10, are you in fifth grade? Are you in? Uh, yeah, because my wife teaches fourth grade, and they're all 10 year olds, and they're all 10. So you okay. should have been just going. Into and fifth at some grade. point in time, the reason I asked about the court proceedings because I do have a very a vague memory. I don't remember what grade I was in, but we were doing like some sort of civics. Because it was exactly a year later, so you, you might have been in fifth or sixth. It was fifth in, or sixth uh, grade. The court proceedings were February and March of '02. Okay, so basically a year after. Yeah, so crash. a year after that, and we yeah. ended up going down to to the county courts um, as part of our civics thing is sitting in and they grabbed my teacher because your court proceeding was going on at the exact same time and they asked her if she wanted to sit in on it. Oh, that's cool. And so she oh, abandoned cool. abandoned all these 12-year-olds in a courtroom yeah, we have no it. business being in and she went to go well, sit in Well, you know, the, 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 a courtroom where a, a cop is, I hate, I don't use this word very often, but it's just a, a matter of facts of the case. A cop is the victim. Mm -hmm. And I was there. You know, I attended... Uh, every minute of that trial, I only testified for 15 minutes. I didn't have much to say because I, I don't have any memory. Right. I, I can only talk about my medical condition and uh, some things like that. But I was there every day, and, and it was it was always a packed courtroom, which, you know, made me feel really good. A lot of support going on. Of course, I mean, the suspect family was in there, but sure. it was nonstop, just people in uniform showing up and the general public there to support is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be a good feeling. It is. Uh, it is. So what, what led you into, uh, into being a cop and, and why, why Phoenix? You know, it's a bit of a, uh, long story. I remember I actually got in trouble by my background investigator for telling the truth, um, <laughs> one time, but no, I got the idea. Um, my older brother became a Phoenix police officer, uh, when I was, uh, 16. Okay. And he's nine years older than me. So I was always one of those kids, man. I was so enamored with police and fire. And as a child, when you don't know any better, I didn't think real people could do that job. Right. I was like, I don't know who gets to do that, but that's cool. Those uniforms. And then my brother becomes a cop and I was like, Oh, okay. I can do that. 
And so I thought about it. You know, I went on ride-alongs. I hung out with his friends, and I knew what a cool job it was. So I, I got a golf scholarship to a small school coming out of high school. And six months into that, I had my uh, uh, my golf coach actually told me after one round that I he counted how many times I said fuck. <laughs> and I said, you know, coach, this is golf. And if you don't say fuck, then you, you're not really you're golfing. Not really, you're not playing golf. So uh, that was a bit of a turnoff. But then also I was watching some of my friends start to get into things that I just didn't want to be a part of. I knew I needed a little structure and discipline. Sure. sure. So I decided, uh, and I mean, let's be honest, I was just not, being a student, I, I was ready for that to come to an right. end. So, uh, joined the military, Air Force. Um, did my four years, awesome. North Dakota, freezing cold. Korea for a year. Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, uh, for the nineteen ninety four Haitian refugee crisis. And I came home, and that's all I had. I was a cop in the military, and so it's a no brainer, right? Come home, twenty two years old. What can go wrong? You just show up with your application and you get the and job. you're in and oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's unbelievable how right, easy right. it is <laughs> when you're 22 well i got a rude awakening and so uh i wanted to work in phoenix because that's where i grew up and that's where my brother worked big city so uh went through their process twice and uh at a couple different junctures uh, and back then i think things have changed obviously the world is uh, we're in the middle of a shitstorm right, right now yeah, with police. To say the least. But when you go back to the middle 90s, it was a very tough test. And I would go down to the Civic Center in Phoenix, and there would be a thousand people showing up for this test, and Phoenix would be hiring 20 guys. Right. And so it was a very difficult job to get. So uh didn't make it through the process. And then I applied. I think I made it through Mesa's process twice and died on their list. Uh, they just weren't hiring enough people. Right, right. Uh, I applied in Tempe, applied with Peoria, uh, DPS, which it did take me long to figure out, you know, I really don't want to do it's that Title traffic. 28 stuff, I don't want to do traffic in Gila Bend, so <laughs> maybe I shouldn't. Um, so to keep a long story short, I this is like 1996. I got out of the military in January of 95. Okay. So we're only like a year and a half into this and I'm doing nothing but applying and going through the whole process, taking polygraphs and, and doing the backgrounds. And I had obviously no issues. I was, you know, a decent kid growing up and then I went in the military. So I had nothing to worry about there. But when I didn't make it on Phoenix, the last time, uh, I, it, it coincided with getting a really good job with Arizona public service started out the Palo Verde nuclear plant. And then I got into the apprenticeship program to be a lineman and linemen are the guys that work on the overhead and underground power lines. Sure. And they and make a is, fortune. Do they dude, not? Listen, this is what I try to explain to recruits. Get this. This is 1997. I am 20, 25, 24, no college degree. And I was making about 80 grand a year. <sighs> Man, built, built my wife and I, my brand new wife. Um, we built a house way out west, moved out back out to Goodyear where I grew up. Okay, love, love it out in the West Valley, and and life was set. You know, we had a daughter and then we had a son in 1998, and 
I was like, this is it. I am set for life. And uh, March 26th of 1999, I came home from work. I remember it like it was yesterday. I uh, just strolled in from work. I'm wearing my, you know, my boots and my dirty jeans and my long sleeve shirt and uh, just that blue collar redneck that I grew up like. Right, right. And uh, turned on the five o'clock news. I'm a news junkie, always have been. And uh, boom, lead story. Phoenix police officer shot and killed 30s Avenue Thomas. And I'm like, hmm. So, and it was Maryville Precinct, which I grew up my later, uh, from age of 13 on up, I lived in Maryville. My brother worked in Maryville. And then, of course, I hear his name, Mark Atkinson, a day later. And then a couple days later, I'm doing a transformer up when back when the 101 was new at 59th Avenue and, um, the 101 put mm-hmm. in a transformer and we knew that the that mark's funeral procession was coming by i'd never experienced anything like this and we just wanted to be respectful we walked over you know across the access road up to the the fence of the freeway took off our hard hats and just stood there and paid our respects and i remember counting the motor officers there were 82 rows so 164 motors right. before they even got to the hearse. And then the procession ended up being eight miles. I mean, there are people still in the church parking lot waiting to get out. Right. When Mark is arriving at the cemetery at second Avenue in Beersley. And it had just, it truly was like the aha moment, the clarity. Like I have to be doing that job. Not, I want this job, not, and it, it, I have to do this. And I went the very next day, put it down now, put in up. another application for Phoenix. And magically I sailed. I mean, it still took, you know, three months to yeah, process. Yeah. No Long joke, processes. But yeah. I sailed through it. Uh, was happy to walk in to APS said, uh, and I didn't even give him two weeks notice. I was so excited and knew this is what I was supposed to be doing. I walked in, dropped off my keys one day. So I'm not coming back. And, I uh, started as a pre-hire, and then I started the academy, class 333. Okay. And 1999, September, and we were the first graduating class of 2000, January 7th of 2000. Nice. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, well, and, and to talk more about, a little, well, a little bit more about that those funeral processions, I'm on the honor guard for my agency, and, oh. and it's it truly is, I, I've done two line-of-duty death funerals, which is too, too many. I think everybody yeah, it can is. agree it with that. It is too, too many. Um, but uh, one of the funerals to, to see a truly powerful moment, like you're talking about the eight mile procession and, and all the rows of motor officers. If you've never seen it with something like uh, a police funeral, um, the, the, again, we, we do love our motors and they lead the way through, uh, through the city from the church out to the cemetery is typically how it goes. Uh, but I did, I was at a, uh, a line of duty death funeral for a, I think it was Tohono Odom, uh, mm-hmm. lost an officer um, last last year, two years ago, mm-hmm. um, and his procession was led uh, by members of the Native American community on horseback. Oh, oh. which was the coolest fucking thing I have yeah, ever seen how good to is this that? day. I mean, you don't want to go to police funerals, obviously, but when you do, it truly is the most powerful thing yep. from the from the beginning all the way till when the the last call is made. It yep. is the most emotional 
powerful thing you will. Oh yeah, and those last calls, experience. whether or not you know the officer, those last calls will. That is the word. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the when the bagpipes come on, they get me. Yeah, oh yeah, they hit me really hard. But that last call, dude, I don't care who you are. If you're not crying, you you need to go home and rethink yeah. your emotions. Hey, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude, absolutely. that last call. And credit to the dispatchers. Because a lot of times they will have the same dispatcher who did the 999, mm-hmm. did the death, do the last call. And I've heard dispatchers make it through it. And then I've heard some that, that don't, you know, yeah. they can't, they get choked up. And dude, you can't help, but it's on a loudspeaker. Thousands of people are listening. Oh, yeah. Just, I get chills. Yeah. We have uh, one of our dispatchers, uh, our officer who, who, uh, was a line of duty death, uh, due to COVID last year, oh. Tyler. Um, and he, and, uh, and one of my FTOs actually, Tom had always said that God forbid anything ever happened to him. They wanted one specific dispatcher names, joy to, to do their last call. Yeah. And she fucking stepped up to the plate and knocked it out of the park, man. She did a great job and really gave Tyler that, that, yeah. the final respects that he needed as far as his final call. Was. You know, there is nothing wrong with doing that. I th- that makes me think of something on a bigger scale. Like Der- when Derek Jeter, you know, one of the most famous sure. New York Yankees yeah. ever, they had a famous announcer who announced all the way into his nineties. And Derek Jeter said, I want you to record the way you announce me. And even after you die, you're the only person who's ever going to announce me. And he did. I did not uh, know that. Even posthumously. Yeah you would hear this guy's voice announcing Jeter every time he came to the plate. And that's what, that is the importance. If you care enough about, and just being realistic, if something happens to me, there's nothing wrong with saying that because it could. It, it could, does, yeah, it does. absolutely. So if you've got one dispatcher in mind, I think that's a beautiful story. Yeah. And then for her to step up and do it, she must have felt very honored as well i imagine so i I haven't talked to to her about that to make a last call uh shout out to dispatchers given that it is telecommunications they saved my life more than once and and they do it without knowing anything they can't see anything they can't hear anything and they just know and i yeah i absolutely love our dispatchers. yeah i was uh was in a a knockdown drag out with somebody and my mic got knocked out of my hands as i'm trying to kick out an Mm -hmm. emergency radio code Mm -hmm. and the dispatcher just was paying attention and could hear the initial you know that maybe one second probably not even one second of right. me attempting to communicate and got me like 15 officers to that, help me out. do they like grow out of the ground oh, yeah. that's what i love yeah, people like, just appear that's it's what I like, like working in a, a decent sized city yeah uh I, I give a lot of respect to like our county sheriffs and guys who are out there by themselves i liked working in a place where if i needed help i'm like you said 7 10 12 just like Damn, yeah. you guys They're like, holy shit. Ninja <laughs> smoke you, pop up uh, out of nowhere. Because there's not, as a police officer, and I, I don't know if other people feel this way, when you're in, when you're in the weeds mm-hmm. like that and you're alone and you hear sirens and you know, hey, Cavalry's that's coming. my backup. Yeah. That is like the greatest feeling. I mean, it, it gives you a rush of adrenaline. It gives you uh, just the, the motivation that all I got to do is hang on for another 15, 20, 30 seconds. And then when they show up, everything's going to be okay. Oh, yeah. I and love you, that. you almost want to look at this I person you're that. dealing with and be like, you fucked up. No, dude, I had one. I, I, I can tell you, uh, if we get to it, uh, I had one of the best ever, uh, situations with that, where the dispatcher was paying attention uh-huh. and I was in a, I was in a mess of, uh, kind of my own creating along with uh, the other guy. And when backup showed up, the guy who showed up was uh, uh, the one person that I would have asked for. And it was like, oh, buddy, 
you know, to the bad guy, I'm like, bad dude, <laughs> you are about to have, your day's about to get really yeah. bad. You thought you were, I've got, I got a couple of guys I work with like that where it's, uh, it's, it's like this guy, you, the people you want next to you in a fight, oh, right? Yeah. You know, oh, or, yeah. or your, your life is on the line. These are the guys that you yeah, know. No wrong with identifying. Hey, if I got to get into something, I, I'm taking you with me. Oh yeah. Anywhere in the world. You're the guy I'm choosing. Oh, yeah. I, I have a couple of friends that I think I still think of that. Oh yeah. That's well, awesome. and, I, and I've talked about it on the show before, but we had our, uh, our, like the most significant incident that I've been a part of was this shooting where this one guy was trying, doing everything he could to kill cops. Mm-hmm. And there was, I don't know, something like 70 or 80 of us out there. Nice. And, and I get on scene and I'm looking around and I realize that my best friend Brent is like nowhere to be found. Uh, cause he had gone, he'd gone back to the station before me and I got on the phone. I'm like, you son of a bitch, you get your ass yes, up here. I am not getting into this shit without yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. And you're not charging overtime. You're not doing anything. Get yeah. your ass, get back, your out ass here. back up. Yes. He's what like, I'm leaving. I'm, co- I'm coming. He's going to listen to this podcast. Hope, <laughs> hopefully you're listening so we, yeah. now. I love you, buddy. Hopefully yeah. you're listening. So you, you get in, uh, graduating, uh, first class, January, 2000, yeah, and then, cool. uh, you start your FTO process. Where does, yeah. uh, where does your career begin in Phoenix? Uh, central city precinct. Okay. And I, you know, everything about my life, I talk about choices and timing, every single thing, all the way up to the accident. I, I'll just throw this out there now. I did not catch on fire because somebody ran into me. That is just not what it boils down to. I caught on fire because of hundreds of choices that I made and that other people made. And this was a a great starting example. I wanted to work in the shittiest place in Phoenix, the worst place. I wanted to, I wanted to arrest bad guys and take them to jail. And so I put in for Maryville and two of us, you know, a couple weeks before graduation, back then they would ask you, where do you want to work? And you could fill it out. And, me and this other guy got Maryville. So I was pumped. Well, two days before graduation, our sergeant walks in and goes, hey, Maryville said they don't need OITs right now, so you guys are going to Central City. And again, I didn't think much of it, but had I gone to Maryville, you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking right. about this right now. Uh, so Central City, and I didn't know anything about it because it was the smallest precinct. Mm-hmm. And nowadays it's, our officers have done an amazing job cleaning that area up, but it was shitsville. I mean, driving down Van Buren. Uh, so the area is basically I-17 to the zoo. Okay. And then from Thomas Road down to uh, Washington Central. Okay. Uh, that that was Central City Precinct. Uh, and, dude, I loved it. I mean, of course, I was, you know, midnights. And uh, we're all good cops start uh, their career. Oh yeah. But you got to work midnights <laughs> and weekends. And why would you not want to? That's, I mean, that's, I have met two people I, I work with that have never worked graveyards and never, and I, I love them both. Never. Well, they, they did like they a week lucky. on FTO and they, it was truly, you sit lucky. there, you sit there and you're like, Oh, you're not a real cop. You never worked graves. And then you go, you think about it. You go, no, nah, actually you're just really lucky. Well, FTO <laughs> spoils you because FTOs, you know, they deserve the good hours, good days mm-hmm. off. So you work, the afternoon shift and then you get weekends off and you do that for three months and then all of a sudden they're like hey you are working thursday through sunday night from 9 p.m till 7 a.m and you're going what yeah. how that how that how that, that happened so quick <laughs> um but i was always kind of a night guy anyway i loved i worked nights in the military great day sleeper so i loved it and but i only did that for the probationary period and i was dedicated to my best friend uh, who I met in the academy. He had been a cop in Ohio. He's now a commander 
with Phoenix PD, we wanted to work together. So did our probation and uh, put in, was able to get to, I went from the 53 area to the 51 area, which is just the west side of Central City. And we were riding together every day. Uh, life was life was great. I, dude, I loved, I'm sure you feel the same way, but all the things that I had thought it was going to be like, and I'm talking like things you dream about, the romantic, fun things you see on TV. Once you do it, it's a hundred times yeah. better. I mean, I love being a patrol officer. Great. Well, then you end up with the barking dog calls and you sit there and you're like, really? Well, <laughs> you, the, the only thing that drove me crazy was the shoplifters at Walmart. Cause I'm like, dude, Oh, it's still a, I, still a massive I, I issue. I have to waste two hours of my life because you needed a $15 pair of shoes mm-hmm. and you have $40 in your pocket. So now I'm really pissed off. Oh yeah. Uh, and of course the loss prevention officers are like, yeah, yeah, I got this guy. And, and you know what? I'm not disrespecting him, but you walk in and you're like, dude, this is the last thing. Yeah. This is the last and place I, I wanted had, uh, to be. The Walmart at 36th street in Thomas. I was there every single night without fail. Yeah. I mean, I can, that's where I might as well go eat, you know, just sit in my car. Cause I know it's coming. Yeah. But that, that was the only call that I would get annoyed with everything else I could handle. You and I are kindred spirits. Those shoplifters. I'm like, they, let's just take this out of title 13. Cause I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's just like Walmart can Walmart's care, got insurance. Yeah, Walmart's got insurance exactly. and they're not, you know. Exactly. We could go on and I but, yeah, dude, yeah. we could talk about that for hours. Jesus. I'm gonna end up I with still a, have bad memories. I'm gonna end that. up with a cease and desist from Walmart's corporate That's where office. my PTS comes from is Walmart, not <laughs> not the not, explosion. Not right? not yeah, the exactly. Fire. Not catching on fire. It was the shoplifters. Uh to go back just uh out of a, a point of curiosity, when you were in the Air Force, you were a uh uh, it's security forces, right? In the Air Force? Security police in the security Air Force. Police. Yeah, not, okay. not MP, it's not SP. SP, okay. You get to wear these fancy berets and, oh. and feel cool. Oh, yeah. And do. when you were in North Dakota, were you up in Mino or Minot, however it's pronounced? No, I was in Grand Forks. And, okay. uh, you know, coming from Phoenix, uh, I got there in October and it was already snowing and 20 below zero. Yeah, I don't, there's I don't not a, operate in that. There's not a hill or a mountain in, well, the Air Force, I think they just thought they were being funny. Like, <laughs> this dude's from Phoenix, we're sitting in Grand Force. And I got there in October and New Year's Eve, I'm uh, walking around one of the, uh, the uh, all the northern tier bases, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana. Uh, I don't want to shock anybody, but that's where all of our nukes are. Right. Buried right. in the ground. Well, I'm walking around the, uh, weapon storage facility checking the stuff we need to check and I slip on a patch of ice my feet go off under me and I land on my M16 that's on my shoulder it snaps my collarbone in half oh. and it was one of those moments I remember laying there on the ground New Year's Eve so it's probably 40 below and that was one of those moments I'm like how did I get here? <laughs> I, 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 where did I, I go like, wrong like, in life? Yeah, yeah. Where did I go wrong in life? How am I laying on the ground in North Dakota right now with a collarbone facing two different directions? Uh, uh, so awesome place. It's one of those places you, know, you, you don't lock your doors. People are so kind. It's sure. ridiculous out there. I loved it. I'm not at all banging on them, but I did. I put in order. I'm like, I will go anywhere in the world. I don't care. Pick a spot. Turkey, Greenland, I don't care, but I have to get out of North Dakota. And they sent me to Korea, which uh, was awesome. If you had, I mean, and you spent a little bit of time at Guantanamo as far as, uh, I don't know if you could ever that was really compare unexpected. them. 
So Guantanamo is unexpected. So it's safe to say yeah. you enjoyed Korea the best. I enjoyed Korea the best because, uh, well, and it was so anticlimactic. There's no drinking age. And I turned 21 while I was there. So I was like, well, this, uh, well I can't uh, even uh, like, le- I, it's not like I can go in waving my ID. Hey, I can buy yeah. a beer legally <laughs> now. I mean, not like I didn't do that right. prior to that. I've well, been there, done that. Um, uh, yeah, but no, Korea was amazing because it was both a very serious, because, you know, North Korea and South Korea, the, the DMV, that's a serious deal. Up there. Sure. I mean, you got to you gotta take that job very serious. So we practiced airbase ground defense nonstop. I got very good with handguns and M16s. I enjoyed painting my face and acted like I was, it was peacetime, but I was, I got to, play soldier sure and the air force doesn't get to do that a lot so i really loved it but then korea at the time this is 1993 was an awesome place to party when you're 20 i mean dude it it, it, i did not i had 365 great days in korea i did not have a bad day i loved it yeah korea's on the list for me man it's one of those places listen you've got to go to songtan where osan air base is okay and I'm not kidding you when I say this. When you walk down Songtan at night, it looks like a miniature Vegas. Everything is lit up. There's nothing but, uh, you know, bars and just people are people are having a good time. All the Air Force people, and then of course, uh, the Koreans love the Air Force guys because they're they're spending money. They're ta- they're sure yeah, they're yeah. taking care of them. They're right. protecting them. The relationships are incredible. So if you ever go. Do your, do yourself a favor and go to Songtan. Don't go to Seoul. Is you can't even walk around. It's, it's just too busy. There's 45 million people, and it's it, it, well, South Korea is the size of Indiana. Oh shit, the whole country. Yeah. So the capital, when it has 45 million people, you can't. Yeah, it's it's kind of a hot mess. Uh, I only went there a couple of times just to to see it, but Songtan is is where you want to go. It's it's badass. And are there any, uh, am I going to find any bars with pictures of Jason Schechterly on the wall? Like, this guy's not allowed back. You, you know what? You might. <laughs> what happens in Korea stays in Korea. And then the uh, the, t- the trip down to old Guantanamo Bay, which sounds like a, what is the joke? The waterboarding at Guantanamo Bay sounds oh really awesome God, if you don't dude. know what either of those things are. <laughs> well, you know, for me, that was, uh, I was still young and I had gotten... So I was supposed to come to Luke Air Force Base after Korea and I was pretty excited to come back home. Yeah, coming home, yeah. And then I got that yanked away two weeks before I left Korea. And I thought for sure I was going to get sent back Northern tier. And I got really lucky getting Eglin air force base in the panhandle of Florida. Mm. I loved golf. As I told you, I went to college for it. My uncle lives in Panama city. I'm like, Oh my God, this is heaven. Right. Got my own apartment, living the dream. Finally at 21, getting ready to turn 22 years old. And I got a call, no kidding. Nine o'clock at night, from a sergeant and he goes hey worldwide deployment get your a bag and i said is this a drill this is not a drill oh, well. where are we going can't tell you great and i'm like i'm in the air force dude not the <laughs> army not the marines this kind of bullshit is not going to work with me and so i packed up my stuff and had a girlfriend at the time that lived with me that when i told her she didn't believe me i'm like what you like I'm not making I'm this up. Make this yeah. shit up and, and disappear. And they didn't tell us where we were going until we got on the C-130. It was amazing. Talk about playing soldier. Yeah. That one I didn't like. And then we land in Guantanamo and 
it was for the a bunch of the Haitians were fleeing the country. There was like a military coup going on, and they were all trying to go to Miami. And our government said, "Time out, can't do that." So, uh, Gitmo is a humongous naval base. I know everybody's heard of heard of it. Google Earth it sometimes. I mean, it is a gigantic piece of Cuba that we own, and we land. And walk off the airplane, and the first thing that the United Nations does is take away our nine mils and our M16s. You're like, hey, what the fuck? I'm like, <laughs> I flew down here. Put that down. That's not yours. This. Yeah, exactly. And then they put it in a locker. I was like, ooh, this isn't good. And dude, I went down there with 44 guys, came home with 38. Oh shit! It was like a no joke deal, and uh, fighting every day because. Uh, the, you know, the Haitians wanted, they didn't want to be in these camps and I can't blame them. It was, sure. it was a mess. And I, we were stuck down there, uh, almost six months. And it was one of those deals. I had a Citadel army captain walk in one day and he just, uh, you know how military and cops talk. He just, just matter of fact said, uh, you guys are going home in two days. Okay. Yeah. Sounds Thankfully. good. And I went home and and that was when I was like, yeah, I think my four years is, yeah. is enough. I'm done. Find it. Find I'm, something yeah, else I'm to done. do. Yeah, I'm done. Well, so jumping back into uh, starting down in Central City Precinct, yeah. uh, how long were you in? How long were you off field training before the, the collision? Well, I was off field training. So January to April of 2000, I was off for right at 11 months off FTO. I was off probation for only uh, two months. Off probation for only two months. And I was on my new squad working with my best friend for only three weeks. And so then, and you're, and you, but let you tell a story. You told us the, the story in my academy class. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but just walk us through. I mean, not, it, it is truly one of those times, as I think any high profile, you know, or, or in injury or death in law enforcement, it starts out as a normal fucking night. Was there anything? That, oh, dude, if, anything that stood out before anything before that occurred? Well, a couple things stood out. First of all, it was March 26th. Oh yeah. And okay. the two, so it was two years to the day that Mark Hackson was killed. And the reason I became a cop and that it meant just as much to me then as it does today. And I went into briefing and the first thing our sergeant, we had a new sergeant, and I won't mention any names, but I didn't like him. And he told me and Brian right away, we can't ride together. This was a Monday. We were short-staffed. And I remember going out in the parking lot, you know, you're loading up your your gear from right. you know, my personal truck to my the trunk of my patrol car. And and I'm just bitching at Brian. I'm like, this is ridiculous. We, we can cover the, the 513 area no problem as a two-man unit and i loved riding with the guy he was he's a great great cop and he had a lot more experience than i did coming six years in ohio and Mm -hmm. coming here and i was just pissed off so uh i mean that lasted i'm being dramatic that lasted about five minutes sure so then gas up the car and what was interesting is i left the precinct and i did not hit the 10-8 button i didn't get on the radio i didn't care about policy procedure i didn't care about anything it's 3 30 in the afternoon and i drove over to maryvale to 30th avenue thomas and mark axon has uh, a beautiful memorial marker of where he was shot and killed he was shot sitting in his car in his seatbelt, twice in the head and 
I just pulled up next to the marker, rolled down the window, made the sign of the cross, said a few words, you know, thank you for your service. Thank you for where I'm at today. It's mm-hmm. because of you that I'm here. And, and then I went 10, eight and, uh, you know, looking back, it's, it's amazing to think I did that and having no idea that, Hey, in about eight hours, Jason, you're probably going to have one of these memorial markers. You don't, you don't know that. Right. Um, but then I went to eight and it was, dude, it was, I hate saying quiet and routine cops say it all the time, but it truly was, there was nothing going on. And when I, I took a couple of minor, you know, 961s, took a couple of pay for four calls and it was a very boring night. And then Brian and I met at the fire station late about nine o'clock to eat. And I had, uh, some traffic accidents, some diagrams, like we were making fun of all that. I had two that I had to do and third shift was coming out. So, you know, for us, and I'm sure for you guys, when, when the next shift comes on, Hey, you know what? You guys get to chase the radio for time the first to do couple paperwork. of hours. And it's time for us to have a little bit of fun with OV work. And uh, everybody has their different thing. I was a big fan of stolen vehicles, mm-hmm. which there are a plethora of in Phoenix. Weird. And so, you know, I'm, <laughs> running, I, I'm running a lot of plates because a felony stop is fun. And it's just what I like to do. Yeah. And so, but I was stuck in the fire station doing my uh, paperwork because I didn't want to you know, work till three in the morning and Brian went back to work. And so I finally leave the station right when I leave, right. When I'm like, all my work is done. It's time to go play and have some fun. Right. It's time to find bad guys, take them to jail. And Brian answers up for a hot call, a domestic violence. And I remember being in my car, like, dude, are you kidding me right now? Because a, a DV call, those are tough. And they, they usually involve, a lot of paperwork yep, and a yep. lot of time, but of course I'm his partner. So right away, uh, you know, I'm going to be his backup. And as I pull up, I see him standing in the doorway. He's got his index card and his pen out. So I could tell he's code four and another two man unit is pulling up and parking and getting out of the car. And you don't need the whole Calvary on a scene sure. like this. Yep. So I was just doing a slow roll and Again, I talk about timing and choices, and one of the guys, uh, Pat Murphy, he's uh, retired now, lives in another state, one of my favorite, just this scrappy little Irish guy. He's one of the best uh, best guys I worked with, and um, he knocked on my window, and I chew, uh, and he he always was bumming chew off me because his <laughs> wife wouldn't let him chew. Sure, okay. So he had to wait till he get to work, and then he steal it from me, and I took the time to stop, roll down the window, gave him my can. He took a dip. I gave him some shit about, you know, Always him, him and his man card. And, <laughs> uh, but those precious few seconds looking back, it's just funny how that, yeah, those things come into play. And then the next call, I a, a hot call came out of an unknown trouble. And that was it. Unknown trouble at 28 something East Thomas. And that's not anywhere close to my patrol zone. So it was in one ear and out the other. Austin and they're busy. So a couple seconds, dispatcher comes on, unknown trouble, found dead body oh, in shit. the apartment. Uh, now one caller says there's a lot of blood on the ground. So now it's 
it's seeming uh, pretty serious, violent crime possibly. Mm-hmm. And again, I just let a brief few seconds go. Nobody was answering. I wasn't doing anything. So I grabbed the radio and I said, 513 Henry, I'll start up. And those are the last words I ever spoken to uh, the radio. Uh, code three. I was on my way eastbound on Thomas Road and uh, 20th Street and Thomas. I'm sure anybody in the valley knows what i'm talking about it's phoenix children's hospital state route 51 very busy yep intersection and as i approached the intersection uh, i had a red light so come to a stop real quick check left check right people getting on and off the freeway uh yield to my emergency vehicle what does it take a second and a half to yeah. clear an intersection Nothing. something like that and just as i'm going to proceed uh i get hit from behind uh, never saw the car coming. I have no memory. So everything that I'm going to tell you is from personal in-depth interviews with the people on scene and listening to the police and fire dispatch tapes. Uh, but uh, this guy hit me. He was having an epileptic seizure and he was doing 115 miles an hour, which, uh, you know, I, I, that's not something I'll ever process on a 40 mile an hour downtown city street. Sure. I've never even seen anybody drive 115. Even maybe a motorcycle can blur by you. And those are the guys I just wave at. Like, dude, I'm not going to have fun killing yourself. (laughs) I'm not even going to chase you. Um, So, you know, at that kind of impact, obviously, uh, it's pretty intense. I I think I probably got my head slammed into the plexiglass, knocked unconscious. And car bursts into flames, travels 270 feet through the intersection. And... Miracles, twists of fate, timing, choices, whatever you believe in and words you want to use, but I come to stop 50 feet from a fire truck. And, you know, I often think about these people because first responders, uh, like with the call I was going to, I had some details. I knew who called 911. I knew why. I knew there was a dead body. I knew there was blood. I knew the address. I had some time to think about how I'm going to approach mm-hmm. this scene, how I'm going to park, what kind of resources am I possibly going to need to call for? And this fire crew, they're just sitting at a red light and the world literally blew up right in front of them with no notice, no warning. And then they see it's a police car. And I have a lot of respect for these people because when you just state facts, Hey, I was in, a car accident on duty and caught on fire. There's a whole lot more to the story. These firefighters, they're not robots mm-hmm. in uniform. These are human beings with emotions and they have their own fears. They have their own way that they handled their training and they were thrust into the fight or flight that you, when you're completely not expecting it. So I give them just an immense amount of credit for what they did. Um, They were able to drive that 50 feet and go to work for me. And they did, uh, I've got the tape on the desktop of my computer and I listened to it. And from the time the engineer, her name's Rebecca Joy, she's retired now. When she said 962 PD involved car fire to the time that she screamed, he's out was 90 seconds. So you got 90 seconds. 90 seconds. Start to finish. From the time that they see you, so that 270 feet. Well, they saw the impact. They saw the impact. They saw the impact. So 90 seconds from 
impact to you're extricated from Until the vehicle. I'm extricated. And, you know, you can hear, again, you can hear her on the radio. She is telling the, the rescue units, uh, you know, in Phoenix, and I apologize. I don't know if there has, you guys use private companies or not, but in Phoenix, all the rescue units are Phoenix sure, firefighters. Yep. And she told them, do not, you come right here to the scene. And by then, we have other people on scene, a couple of police officers who had gotten there. One cut my seatbelt, one crawled into the car to get, you know, I'm 6'3", I weighed 200 pounds at the time, best shape of my life. And I was of no help. A car window is not, a driver's side window is not very big. Right. To get a 6'3 guy with long, lanky legs and size 13 boots out, and I got stuck underneath the steering wheel and dashboard, and this other police officer, just wearing the normal polyester button-down uniform, crawled into the cab of the car to help free my legs. Uh, they won Officers of the Year 2001, what they did free that night. And again, what are they thinking while they're doing this? I don't recognize this guy, but this is one of my friends that I am watching die right now. Yeah, That's, that's an overwhelming thing. I, I never had to experience that. So again, just crazy. One of them's retired, Kevin Chadwick, and Brian Brooks is now a SWAT officer with DPS. Um, but I never touched the ground. I mean, it was like being at a concert. They said, I body surfed. They just passed me from one person to the next and right into the gurney, onto the gurney, and two paramedics jumped in, uh, started trying to find a place. Uh, they're very proud to this day. They got two IVs in me, and I'm two and a half miles away from not only the best burn center in the country, in Maricopa County Hospital, but there are so many cops over the years shot, car accidents without fire, stabbed, and that's where you go. Right. Is because those doctors are the best. And the burn center is such a protective cocoon. Nobody could get in there. No media is coming in. Nobody outside of your family and maybe a few, you know, like your chief or, mm -hmm. or the hunter club. Nobody is coming in there. So the burn center is well known that that's where, that's where you're going to go if, right. you're, if you're seriously injured. I was on their trauma table in eight minutes. And, and that had to have had a, a huge contributing factor to the fact that you are still I, sitting across from me right now. I mean, there's a lot of contributing factors. My my vest saved my life because uh, had my chest been burned, uh, or well, we can get into the injuries, but my chest was not burnt, and I would have died very quickly because mm -hmm. um, you can't breathe when your chest is burned. It's just, uh, it doesn't expand. Your lungs don't expand, you and you die. But, yeah, that timing uh, of eight minutes and allowing... Well, I couldn't have spent five more seconds in the car. Sure. Uh, being unconscious helped, so I wasn't in the middle of the the chaos and the fear. I wasn't yelling and screaming like DPS officer Skip Fink, who burned to death in uh, February 18th of 2000. I was at work when it happened. I'll never forget it. But the witnesses said that Skip was beating on the window and screaming, and they couldn't get him out. And I've seen his autopsy report when we were doing a lot of the advocacy work to make these cars safe. Mm-hmm and deal with Ford and Skiff had not one single injury. He just burned to death and alive, awake. And I didn't have, thankfully, I did not have that fear. And so I didn't have the smoke inhalation that would have certainly killed me also because I was, I was at peace. I, I, I wasn't taking those deep breaths. Uh, so there's just so many things, but yeah, the eight minute thing and, and getting in front of those doctors and they were able to go to work like, well, I mean, they had to wait for my family. Sure. And my buddy Brian is the one who uh, 
identified me at the hospital because uh, only by a tattoo. He didn't think it was me. He actually looked at me and said, thank God, that's not Jason. He thought it was me because I wasn't answering. And he knew it was a police car. He knew I was in the area. And again, the emotions that he must have felt. And then to see me and realize it was me, I have a job to do. I, I, I don't get to think about myself. I right. don't get to worry about Jason. I have to go knock on his, the door of his house and completely change his wife's life forever. I had to call his parents and tell them to come to the hospital. I have to contact all of our friends from the academy and tell them. I mean, he was, oh, it still affects him to this day. In, sure. a, in a positive way now because I've come so far. But, I, dude, I give him an immense amount of credit because when you're faced with that and it's your best friend, fuck. That's, yeah, I mean, that's easily the, probably stuff. the hardest so, thing that he did in his career. Or, or up there. Uh, you know, know. It, yeah, without a doubt, the the hardest thing. Because, and he said he even called his wife, and she was the one person that he let his emotions go, and he cried uh, while he was driving out to my place because I lived in Avondale at the time. So he had a you know he had a good 30-minute drive. Sure. Uh, but he he called his wife, and he's he just told her, matter of fact, Jason's been in an accident, and he's going to die. Um, so when you're faced with that strong belief, and what he just saw, oh, dude, it's, I mean, it's brutal. And people, you know, that's, that's not what they teach you in the academy. Right. You don't know what you're going to feel when, uh, when you are faced with these situations. So it wasn't just, this was not about me. I'm a small part of this. This is about the cops who got next to that car, the firefighters, my doctors, my nurses, and then my friends who had to witness and deal with, uh, you know, when my parents get there and sure. uh, stuff like that. So uh, wait if my family got there. Brian did an amazing job. They got there in about an hour and uh, it was pretty powerful. My wife said, uh, you know, Brian would not tell her anything except Jason's done an accident. I have to get you to the hospital right now. And she was so discombobulated in the middle of the night. Sure, you know, sure. she saw him. He woke her up. And she, what do you think she did immediately? I was probably freaked out, right? Freaked out. I mean, here's Jason's best friend, somebody I know very well in uniform in the middle of the night. It can only mean one thing. One thing. Yeah. So she's completely discombobulated to the point. Brian's like, do you need help getting dressed? We have to go. And he said he drove <laughs> you know, about 120 down I-10. Rightfully so, yeah. To the hospital. And But my wife said she still didn't understand what was going on? They walked through the emergency room of County Hospital. You take a right, and that's where the double doors to the burn center are. And when those doors opened, by now there are a hundred police officers in there. And of course, everybody's yakking and it's chaos. And when those doors opened and they saw Brian and my wife, she said it was instant silence and it was like the Red Sea parting. And even though I'd only been a cop for 14 months, she knew the severity of my injuries based on what, how those officers reacted. And what a proud moment for me sure. to know that uh, that's how they conducted themselves when she walked in. They paid her the respect. They got the hell out of the way, and they shut the hell up. And uh, even though it, it let 
the gravity of the situation be known to her. I just think it's a beautiful story yeah. to know how we conduct ourselves. Which uh, during those moments? Which of your tattoos was it, Brian? Able to identify my Tasmanian devil that actually I had to get the sucker put back on. Yeah, okay. now I ha- I only had two tattoos at the time. Now I have like fifteen because they look a lot better than burn scars. Yeah, <laughs> so sure. I'm not, I'm not sure. shy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was my my Taz because uh, Brian didn't think it was me. And then when they were cutting off my uniform, it was like, holy oh my shit, God, yeah, that's. And that's what he told the nurse. He said, I know who this is. And, you know, the doctors were kind of like, well, then you probably have a job to do. So we'll take care of this. You get out of here. Um, So they got my family there and the doctor, Dan Crusoe, who I got, I could spend hours talking about him. His, His license plate actually said cop doc on it because he worked on so many officers. And, you know, he lost a few, but he saved a lot that are out there working and walking around right now that shouldn't be alive. And, uh, he died four years ago, uh, of cancer at 53 years old, but he told my family pretty bluntly, look, I, I have never seen burns to somebody's head and face like this. Jason mm-hmm. will not survive, but I have to take all of that. Burns will keep on burning that you, you have to get all that dead bacteria to build tissue off. And, so very quickly, my wife signed the paperwork and I went into surgery and uh, that's what they had to do. They just had to remove all of the burns and which basically meant my entire physical appearance. Sure. Yeah. How long, uh, how long was it before you finally woke up again? Two and a half months. Holy shit. June 12th. And what? Amazing. Were you able to communicate or? or yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was weird. I, I woke up. I remember being very clear-headed, just like I am right now, just right away. The sound, the smell of a hospital. I knew where I was, but I couldn't move. I couldn't open my eyes, or at least that's what I thought. I, I was actually blind. I didn't know that. Um, so I just had a thousand thoughts pouring into my mind. And my wife was in the room, but she didn't know I had woken up because I'm just laying there motionless. Sure. I have a trach in. I looked like death. I mean... I weighed 100. I'd lost 60 pounds. Uh, so incredibly frail, uh, tons of open areas and bandages still. And uh, finally, I, I, you know, I coughed and I said something. I don't even remember what it was, but uh, she was there. And th- she told me I was in a car accident. And I, but I, rem- I was like, I was just at work. So <laughs> my biggest thought was was it my fault yeah you know sure. did i take somebody <laughs> what did i do wrong uh and um she said no um and i asked well when, when was it so i was knocked unconscious you know it was three hours ago yeah yeah, yeah. whatever and she told me the date march 26th i'm like that has got to be the dumbest answer you're like it's ever. march 27th like what what? Do you, what, you know, what do you give me a date for well what's today and when she told me it was june 12th i'm like Two and a half, two and a half months gone in the blink of an eye, and I don't understand anything now. And how do you how do you process uh, yeah, that? Yeah, you can't, you can't, especially when I can't see myself. I wasn't in any pain because of all the medication. Mm-hmm. And you know, looking back, thankfully I couldn't see myself. It would have been, uh, I don't would not have recovered mentally had I seen myself at that moment. But 
I was not able to process. And uh, I immediately, when she told me that my car caught on fire, it was the only thing that I'd ever been scared of. It was the only thing that I prayed would never happen. And I'm just being told your car caught on fire. So I thought my legs had been burned, mm -hmm. but I was still devastated by this. And I had to, well, I started down the path of emotions between the fear and the sadness and the tears. Uh, you know, I've lost my job. What are my children going to think of me to the, to the anger? I mean, uh, my, my best friends walking into the room and I'd yell at them. I'd cuss at them. Uh, I mean, I was going through just a shit ton of emotions that were not something I could even try to hide. It was, I it was either dead silence. I didn't want to talk or it was exuberant emotions of, of sadness and, and anger. And it went that way for about three weeks. And how long were you, uh, were you blind for? Cause you pulled up in a Dodge Ram. So I'm, I'm thinking you're doing just okay. I was completely blind for nine months. Okay. And, uh, it was because my corneas were so damaged. They covered them with skin grafts and then they opened those skin grafts. And, uh, I always describe it like being underwater and trying to see something at the other end of the pool. So it's not darkness, but it is so blurry. Sure. And, uh, that was without a doubt the most claustrophobic, terrifying thing that I ever experienced. Uh, to be to be blind is just uh, it's horrific. And now all these years later, I'm starting to uh, you know they do a lot of different things. My own blood drops in my eyes to stop the scarring. I got to back to where I could wear contacts. I returned to work, and uh, but now between age and you know the injuries starting to catch up to me. This shit weather i live in how sure. dry and hot it is doesn't, <laughs> doesn't help fucking me. Help. no it does not help me at all so things are not going so well now but i'm always consumed with gratitude mm -hmm. i've had eyesight that i shouldn't have had for the last 20 years i've watched my children grow up my youngest who was born after the accident is now 18 and so if i end up losing uh the ability to drive losing my eyesight uh, i won't ever go back into complete darkness again uh, it's my corneas that I, everything behind the corneas is great. It just will probably get to a point where it's so blurry. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not a candidate for corneal transplants. They won't take because my eyelids had to be reconstructed and I don't produce, it, it's all kinds of medical stuff. Sure. It's just, I'm not able to get uh, a corneal transplant and make my eyesight better like a lot of people can. So, um, so I was blind for nine months and, but by then, I was just thankful to, to finally see light and colors again. I was thankful to finally see, I'd already asked a thousand questions. Now it's time to look in the mirror, uh, get really close to it, but see my scars, see what I look like. And then I could start working on what I, I could go to doctors and say, you know what, this is what bothers me. Can, can we work on this mm -hmm. and this? And, you know, being in the line of duty, I was free to, go anywhere I wanted to, see any doctor I wanted to, have any surgery I wanted to. And I took advantage of that for uh, many, many years. I mean, I do recall being, you know, being younger and, and seeing you on the news in Sky Harbor Airport and either coming coming back or going to, oh, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, these amazing medical professionals for whatever procedure it was. Mm -hmm. But that, that is a, 
a distinct memory that I have. Yeah. Oh, and I was, I mean, listen, I've had 56 surgeries. I haven't had one since 2008 to put that in perspective. I had them all. I just finally got to a point where, all right, I'm good. Sure. And, uh, uh, but I was such a mess back then. Uh, I mean, I could win a, I don't look good right now, but I could win a beauty contest today compared to what you're talking about in Mm -hmm. 2003, four or five. It was, uh, it was pretty bad. So, um, but you know, I went back to work on my eyesight. I went back to work on, uh, my hands. Uh, I told everybody I'm going back to work and everybody from my doctors to my best friends said, Jason, just, you know what? You survived. Just go home, be a dad, um, and try to be healthy. And I'm like, no, I am a police officer and I am going back to work. And I had a few people, doctors and uh, myself, and that believed in that. And that's what I worked toward. And, and I did. And how, how long was it before you were able to return to work? I went back to work November 12th of 2002, 18 months after the accident, two weeks after my youngest son was born. And I got into a truck by myself and drove back to work. That was something I was very proud of. Uh, started out as a public information officer, working for my academy sergeant, which was a lot of fun. And because, you know, you're pretty scared and intimidated, your academy sergeant, while you're in the academy, yeah, oh, yeah. and then to work for her. Uh, she retired a couple of years ago as a commander, Lloyd Burgett, and uh, she's just an awesome person. She's a badass in the academy, taught us so much. I credit her with a lot, but she took really good care of me in the PIO office, mm-hmm. uh, gave me work to do. I mean, I wasn't there as a, a charity case. I, I got in there every day, and I had work to do. I was responding to scenes. I was talking to the media, and 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 then I got uh, the awesome opportunity. Phoenix is a great department. They gave me a chance to live out my dream as a homicide detective, and when I started, it was not, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything about anything, so I couldn't be a case carrying detective. I couldn't sure. investigate, uh, but I could do little things. I could listen to jail tapes, run to court, get a subpoena signed, whatever. Um, but then, you know, I had an incredible chain of command, my sergeant, my lieutenant, my commander, my assistant chief. They were all like, dude, spread your wings, go. There's schools you can sign up for. There's on the job training we'll give you. And I ended up working my way up to where I was the scene investigator for our squad. And so I was doing the suicides cause I was a junior detective and all the seniors, Guys were like, I've done, done my suicides. I've done, yeah, done, the suicides, I've done hundreds. Yeah. I don't need to be getting called at four sure. in the morning. So I was doing those and, and you do those alone. And then I was doing the scenes of, of some pretty high profile cases. And, uh, when you're in a scene because of scene integrity, you're in there alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you'll bring in a photographer, you'll bring in a, a CSI person to collect the evidence, but you're the one who goes in there alone and, kind of walks it and identifies the evidence and marks it and then make sure that it is collected. It's an incredibly important job knowing that two, three, five years down the road, you could be sitting on a sure. witness stand getting asked about this. Uh, one of the tougher parts is you're the one who goes to the autopsies. And, you know, unfortunately I had to go to the autopsy of a few officers and going to the, it took me three or four autopsies just to get used to what I was watching right. because they are barbaric what what goes on in those things um but doing an autopsy of you know a shithead gangbanger knowing i just need the evidence i need to talk to the doctor and then all of a sudden you go to the first one of a child or 
like I said, the first time I went to one, uh, uh, Jason Wolf, Eric White and Jason Wolf were killed on the same scene, and it's rare to have two cops killed at the same time, and they were killed a half mile from my house. I was at home eating dinner when I got the call, and when they gave me the address, I'm like, holy shit. Dude, that's, you could walk there. walk there. Yeah. But anyway, I, I had to go to um, Jason's autopsy, and it was, uh, I can't really describe it. It was, it's just, it's not okay yeah. to watch uh, one of your, uh, I didn't know him. Personally, he was a patrol officer, kind of new, and I, I had been gone with my injuries, and then I was in homicide, so I didn't know the guy, but mm-hmm. he was still a cop, and to watch him get cut on was, uh, that was a tough one. Um, and then David Uribe, uh, which was the case that ended up causing me to think about retiring. Sure. Um, but I loved the job. I loved uh, being a part, speaking for victims who can't speak for themselves Mm -hmm. and working with these families and just trying to bring justice to them, trying, trying to bring closure, uh, working with guys who had 25, 30 years on and, and were so good at, I I just, I I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And it went a long way in my recovery process. Yeah. Cause it kept you working. Yeah. I I was doing something productive. You need to get back. You need to get back in the saddle. I was doing something more important than me. Sure. This is not, I, I did not care about my appearance or anything else. What I cared about was I was putting a badge on my belt every day and I was going to the office and I was writing reports and I was going to scenes and we, you know, you're investigating these things. It matters. And that's what I loved. I did this job is a serious job. And when you care about it in the right way, when you do it with honor and integrity, it's the most rewarding thing ever, no matter what. So yeah, just to be a part of that again and be productive took away any of my other emotions about what I could or couldn't do. Sure. I was focused on what I was doing and it was awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I've, I've talked to a number of cops, uh, who over just, just from the stuff that we experienced last year across the country with, with, uh, the anti-police movement and the defund movement. And a lot of it, it's interesting to sit and, and talk to guys and, and we'll talk to, I say guys, talk to officers about what the fuck am I going to do if I don't do this? Cause it's, it, we've achieved our dream, right? We yeah. wanted to do this, you know, exactly. just like you, you looked at these guys as, as like superheroes. They I, were. I can distinctly remember in Orange County, California, where I grew, spent a little bit of time growing up. My sister went to a Catholic prep school and there were two, mo- I don't remember what city it was in. I would shout them out, but I have no idea other than it was in the state of California in Orange <laughs> County. Um, but there were two motor officers that would sit on the sidewalk and they'd let me play with the radar gun. And oh, I was like yeah. five or six years old. How and good that, is that, you know, that had a, a clearly a lasting impact. And yes, then for me, a, a good portion of, yes, of going into service was nine 11 and being yes. aware and cognizant of that. Yes. Um, and, and even I sit here and go like, oh, Holy shit. Like, what am I going to do if I don't do this? Yeah. And, yeah. and cause it's not a 40 hour week job. It's right. who you are. Yeah. And you know, the beautiful thing about places like Phoenix, you can, you can move around and do things you're interested in, but at the heart of it all, you're just a cop. You're still just a you're cop. Just, you're just a cop. Yeah. And it's every day, all day, forever. Yeah. It's who you are. Yeah. And, so. and you know, years and years and years from now when I retire, it's still going to be, you know, my my case over there up against the wall is going to probably be a, have a little bit more to it, right? Well, you have some more stuff have a lot in. more to it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it'll never go away. Yeah. It, it, it truly will never go away. And it shouldn't. No. It shouldn't. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of those jobs. It's not a cliche to, when you talk about if you do it as a calling. You know, it's kind of like being a teacher or a nurse. 
being a cop is a, uh, the people who do it for the wrong reasons, like, oh, I just want a decent, I want, well, it's my pay, you know, it's yeah, going to pay, yeah, pension. yeah it's going to pay, yeah. and, and I, I heard the retirement's good, they don't last very long, you know, and that's why I tell the recruits in the academy, you'll know in a couple of years if you made the wrong decision, but for those of you in here that are here for the, like, whatever your Mark Atkinson is, or your 9-11, if you're here for the right reason, it's, it's just in your soul, yeah. and it, 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 that's the greatest part about it. It's hard and it's hard to describe, right? It, to, to people who maybe don't and, and people that, that don't experience it, nothing nothing wrong with that. I'd rather yeah. you I'd rather you know that you don't want to do this mm-hmm. and you know, then you take up an academy spot, end up on the road somewhere you right. don't need to be. Right. And you're just not you're not built for this situation that maybe, you know, God or or the universe or whatever your belief is, whatever puts you into a spot where hey, you know what, you probably are not the person who needs to be in this spot. Well, right and that's now. what I have such a hard time with the world we live in right now, because I did the job and because I care about it so much and I did sacrifice some things for it, I have no problem calling out the bad officers, the Derek Chauvin's of the world. But I also have no problem with, you know, these reporters and these politicians, until you put a uniform on and serve, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Because you do not know what you're talking about until you, until you do a traffic stop. I mean, that mayor in Minnesota, like, I'm not sure police officers need to be armed on traffic stops. Did you watch the video of the New Mexico State Trooper get oh, executed? Yeah. I just a, watched that. I, I could not bring horrific. myself to watch it until I saw it today. It's horrific. And and again, I have no problem being honest. He That was not a tactically sound traffic stop. He saw, I mean, we don't need to get into the details. It's fucking horrible. But he got executed on the side of the road with, the same gun that these politicians want off the thing, but because this shithead killed a police officer, magically it's okay. And then you've got this mayor running his mouth because now he gets an opportunity with what Officer Potter did, the mistake she made, and she's going to pay the price. It's a case-by-case basis. She made a huge mistake. I can't for the life of me figure out why, but I think she was appropriately charged, and she probably will be found guilty yeah. it was reckless it caused the death of another person and the charges of manslaughter that's that sticks just the way it, and if it you goes. over if you overcharge then that, you're going to lose that all day long yeah it, the, yeah because it's it video doesn't lie i right. mean it, it is on video it's pretty clear she made an epic mistake that cost them by their lives now also had the the guy not had expired tags had he not committed ag assault and then not answered for that got the bench warrant issued which again these politicians and reporters when a bench warrant especially a felony warrant is issued by a judge a police officer has no discretion right you have to arrest that person and part of traffic stops i pulled a guy over one night i i can't remember how stupid it was they didn't use their blinker or had a tail light out it's just a good tool to see you're not, you, not everybody needs a ticket, right? but it's a tool to find out other things. And I pulled a guy over, I ran him and he was wanted for murder out of Oklahoma. Now that, yes, I was proud of that. But when I went home that night, what I thought about was the victim's family in Oklahoma is going to be so thankful. This guy was caught. And now we have people like this idiot mayor in Brooklyn center is taking 
the Potter case, and he's going to get his little 15 minutes of CNN fame mm-hmm. and say things like, I'm not sure cops need to be armed on traffic stops. Are you fucking crazy? Go make a traffic stop, then I dare you. Yeah. At 1 a.m., by yourself. In a shit I part da- of town. I dare you to walk up uh, on a tinted window vehicle, and you have no idea who's in there, and do it unarmed. Yeah. Let, let's see how you feel see how, about yeah, it. It's yeah, fucking yeah. scary. Go on. It's, like, let's it, see you do it, it. It is. It's scary. And it's one of the most dangerous things cops do. That's, again, not a cliche. It's just simply you don't know who's in there. You don't right. know what, what, where they just came from or what they're trying to get away from. And so that's, but again, but my whole point is because I care so much about law enforcement and the 99.9% of guys who do it for the right reasons. And when I say guys, don't get offended. I mean, guys, girls, everybody. Right. Guys right, right. is just, I, when I talk to a group of girls, I'm like, what's up, guys? It's yeah. just how I talk because I'm old. Um, but so I don't have a problem calling out the the officers that, that do it wrong. And we all get painted with the broad brush. Sure do. Yeah. But also these politicians, and I said it on my podcast the other day, we are, whew, we are just starting the avalanche just the the first few pieces of ice and snow at the top have started to fall and uh, it's going to be it's going to get a whole lot worse yeah we got a long it's gonna, long it's road ahead of us a lot more officers unfortunately are going to die and what these idiot activists don't realize is a lot more civilians who don't need to die are going to die too because they're being told escalate the situation they're being told to resist and run and argue and fight you saw it with an army officer the other night Mm -hmm. and my son i my son is grew up in law enforcement family my middle son 22 years old and he put something on social media the other night and i very rarely say anything because i know you know his generation is a little different he just got out of college and so i said hey you know what i this one upsets me so we need to talk about this. Why did you put this on there about this? Did, did you know I'm talking about the army? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I said, and he, he explained to me what he knew about it. And I said, okay, I want you to do me a favor since you want to share this with the world. I want you to take the time to watch the video from start to finish. Both sides, the officer cam, hear everything the officer said and did. And then I want you to watch the video of the cell phone mm-hmm. that Mr. Victim, who wanted to be a victim and a martyr and, get, again, get his 15 minutes to CNN fame because that's what they're telling him to do. I want you to watch both these videos. It's 33 minutes total, start to finish, and then come talk to me. And he did it, and he came back, and he's like, yeah, I was not informed, and uh, I'm sorry for that. I was like, no, don't, don't say sorry. But educate yourself. Absolutely. Don't listen to somebody else's opinion. Don't read something on Twitter and then repost it because you don't know what actually is going on. And that's what we're facing here. And I, I don't want you to disrespect me or the your uncles, your godfather that you grow Their lives matter. And uh, so even in my own house, I'm like, dude, fucking don't do it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's like what do we what do we always learn in uh, in school growing up, right? You're going to do your homework, show your work, right? Yeah, like exactly. Like, like exactly. Tell me it's how not, you got to it, that point. It's, right? it's not. It, <laughs> well, it's not that hard, but people jump. That's just the, the world we live in today. And I mean, uh, social media has been 
has been great in a lot of ways. It does wonders for my speaking career. It, it did wonders for my son's baseball recruiting. He's going to play college baseball next year, my youngest son. But outside of that, it's just the most evil thing to me and the downfall of, because uh, people can get on there and just say whatever oh, yeah. they want. And as soon as they say it, it's uh, it just sticks for so long. And like, no, that's that's not what happened. And until you want to tell the truth and study on it, but anyway, that's, yeah, yeah, where are the things, where are the fact checkers they, at they, for that things one? Things are a mess. It's yeah. a, it's a scary deal right now. Very yeah, scary. Absolutely. So, anyway. Um, so yeah, I returned to work and then, uh, retired just between not qualifying for my gun again, uh, with how deformed, uh, my hands are. I lost five of my fingers, but I learned how to shoot a gun mm -hmm. and hit the target. Well, Hey, there and you I was go. very proud of that. And there's a gun in my truck right now because of where I live. I'm, I'm not ever going anywhere unarmed. Absolutely. Um, but I couldn't qualify. And I was okay with that. The, those time requirements, they're, they're necessary. They're important. And the fact that I couldn't fire three, uh, Do the mag unload, exchange. reload, yeah, right. mag exchange, fire three more in, in 12 seconds from seven yards. I, dude, that's okay. I, I, then I shouldn't be out there with a gun. And that's, that's true. I, I wouldn't want to risk other people's lives or my own. And then my eyesight, the doctors worked so hard to get me back to work. And here I was, uh, I mentioned the David Rebe case, uh, without a doubt, the most honorable, powerful, emotional week of my life. And it was a 53 state straight hour investigation. The, the kid who killed Oscar Rebe is on death row. And the other guy, uh, in the car got 27 years, but it really took its toll on, well, it took its toll on all of us, even the healthiest. But for me, uh, I was taking for granted my second chance at eyesight and he was killed May 10th of 05. And I finally retired in August of 06. It was a, you know, it, it, it took me a while to, sure. to come to terms with, well, you know, cause like you could quit tomorrow. Right. And say, you know what? I want to go be a, I'm going to go to flight school. I'm going to fly sure. airplanes. And if within a year you decide, no, I'm going to go back to law enforcement, you still have your post certification. Yeah. For somebody like me and my injuries, once I walked away, that was it. That was it. Yeah. There, was, there was no coming back. So it took me a while, but uh, once I did, and I've, I have not regretted it uh, a day since. I got to, I lived my dream. It can never be taken away from me. Uh, great memories. I stay involved. Again, I still teach at the Academy. Oh yeah. I teach victimology. Yeah, you came and taught my class. My story so. and, uh, stay involved with my friends. Uh, big, you know, supporter from not only the 100 Club, the charity organizations, right down to trying to be an ambassador for, for Phoenix and, and the Valley. Uh, so I stay involved and I'm just, uh, I just don't go to work every day. That's, right. that's the only thing that really changed. I still feel like a cop. Yeah, <laughs> I just I just and you're still you're still you're cop adjacent. I, I, just, right? I just have to say former uh, Phoenix police officer now. Yeah, uh, uh, don't say X. No, don't that's say that's always X. a bad. That's thing. a bad. Yeah, uh, you yeah, don't want to be an yeah, X anything. You, you you fuck something up if you're an X cop. <laughs> if you are a former cop or a retired cop, you did okay. You did you did uh, you did the job. I am uh, <laughs> I the most severe uh, collision I was ever in was a rollover accident, and my dad had gone out and taken pictures of the car after it was taken off to the yard, and it was. It was tough to look at those pictures. Have you seen the car? Oh, I not only have I seen the car, but right before they, so they kept all of our cars. And when I say all of ours, we were ground zero here in the Valley. Uh, 
1998, we lose Juan Cruz on the side of I-10. 2000, Skip Fink. Then we have my accident. I'm the guy who gets a fire truck in the intersection and gets to go home. And everybody else deserved that chance. They didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And then April of 02, Chandler loses Rob Nielsen. And so you've got, uh, I think, 33 officers across the country kind of you know spread around. Louisiana State Trooper, Florida State Trooper, New York State Trooper, uh, Hawaii, of all places, has sure. happened. But here in Arizona, you had four in four years. And so they kept all the cars. And when they were finally going to, when my attorney called and said, hey, we're going to get rid of these, uh, I went down and uh, took professional pictures with it. And yeah, it's just, it was, it's amazing to look at. I, I, I don't mind, well, I show the pictures all the time in my presentations. Uh, it's, it's a hell of a thing to look at and to think uh, again, but I don't think about the, like, I don't have any PTS from it. And uh, I credit with that simply with that. I wasn't targeted, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of cops, you know, if you get a gun pointed at you and somebody's basically unspoken words, you're not going home tonight. That's a whole different thing. I was not targeted. The guy who hit me made a lot of bad mistakes and he paid a price. He went to jail for 10 years. So I never had the anger or anything like that. So like when I see my car, when I look at those pictures, all I think about again is the firefighters and the police officers. I can't tell you how many times just in the course of weekly business, I drive through that intersection at 20th Street and Thomas. And every time that I get there and uh, I catch like a yellow light that I can hit the brakes for or a red light, I feel a sense of peace that I can sit here for a second and look at where I was sitting, where I traveled, where the fire department was, try to picture the descriptions I've heard, the flames so high they're licking the underside of the 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 freeway. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to imagine what these people were going through emotionally and physically risking their own lives. Uh, And I just, I truly, I love to try and, and, put myself there because even though I was there, I I wasn't, I don't have any memories or visions or, uh, anything, which is great. So I don't have any nightmares. I didn't, again, I didn't suck in the smoke or the fire and, and die from it. But I love thinking about what other people did for me and what they saw. And I know, I mean, I just had my 20th anniversary and I spent it with two of the firefighters and we talked about it again. I, you know, I still, to this day, I'm like, tell me, and I'll still learn new things. And I see how it changed their lives as parents or as firefighters or just as human beings now that they're older. And I love to be able to show them, hey, what you did was worth it. Yeah. You don't, you probably did this for a lot of people who don't come back and say, thank you. Look at my life right now. Look at the child that was born after the accident that shouldn't even be alive. And he's going out to play college baseball. And then he's going to hopefully get married and have kids that shouldn't exist. And then they're going to have kids that shouldn't exist. We're talking about generations of things because of 90 seconds of courage that you showed on one particular night. Yeah. That's fucking poetic, dude. I, I don't care who you are. If they, <laughs> that is just awesome. Yeah. And I love to think about that. Yeah. How, was Ford fairly receptive to these? Uh, I imagine there was, there was quite a lengthy process with, with getting them and getting the changes made to the Crown Vicks and, 
Yeah, no, they were absolutely 0% receptive. Uh, the police officers who were dying were uh, just little hash marks on a piece of paper. Uh, and it was easier. It's easy to talk about people when they're dead. Can't see them. Right. Can't hear their voice. Well, all of a sudden you have me with a pretty horrific set of injuries right on their face. And I have a voice. And that's part of what got me back out there. Like, you know, most people who look like me would not want to get in front of a camera. I recognize very early, I owe it to these guys. They did deserve uh, every chance that I got and they didn't get it. I had a fire truck in my intersection. I'm going to speak up. And again, Ford wouldn't do anything, but it was, I'm very proud of our community here. Phoenix, Chandler, Tempe, they took it upon themselves to spend the money and put bladders inside the tanks get those uh i mean the guy who used to own he's retired now but owned fuel safe in scottsdale he was sitting on the couch one night watching the news about it, it was probably about a year or two after my accident right around when rob nielsen was killed and he made fire stuff for military mm -hmm. like that will be on helicopters so they don't blow up when a 50 cal hits them. Sure. Thing, sure. They, things that inert the combustibility of fuel. So it, it cannot catch on fire. And he's listening to some reporter say, you cannot prevent these rear and fuel fed fires. And this guy, civilian who owned a company, millionaire, he was sitting on his couch one night going, well, you're fucking wrong. Want to bet? <laughs> Watch me. And he created, uh, the shields that go around the gas tanks that they get punctured first. They put out a powder that inerts. It causes the fuel to not even be able to, it doesn't put out a fire. It causes the fire can't even start. And our departments collectively retrofitted these cars themselves. And I, I mean, I have friends who've been rear-ended since mm -hmm. and walked away from it. And I'm, you know, I'm very, proud of all that and then we fixed the taxi industry here you know the guy who hit me back then you could spray paint your cell phone on the side of your car and car yourself a taxi nowadays it is all regulated as i'm sure you know if there is not a z as the second letter on the license plate it's illegal the departments of weights and measure is involved when you're dealing with taxis out there as a patrol officer and it wasn't like that so we got that industry regulated through the state legislature i was very proud of that so that you don't have guys like the one driving who hit me who wasn't taking his medicine who wasn't he had caused four other accidents prior to mine uh that obviously got worse uh up to the point and again he spent 10 years in jail but a lot of good came out of this one moment in time and sure it's it's awesome have you uh and he said he spent He's, he ended up doing 10 years. Have you had any interactions with him other, outside of uh, court? No. And it, it, that was pretty simple for me because I wanted to attend the trial every minute of it. I wanted to hear what the investigators said, what the prosecution said, what his attorneys were saying. And he was found guilty. He had a passenger in his car who survived. And he was so he was charged with ag assault against P.O., which is class two okay. and ag assault against his passenger. And when it was time for sentencing, uh, he had suffered a broken leg and his car didn't catch on fire. Mm -hmm. And he told the judge that his leg was broken by a bunch of my friends 
from the police department went to the hospital and beat him up. And this is after being found guilty by a jury. So when he said that, that was immediately the moment I almost giggled. Like, if your character is the, that, we're talking about an inch high amount of character in this man. And so I never gave another thought after that. And then I got, you know, I don't talk about it much because I don't get into the uh, politics of it. I, I have accountability. It was a lot of choices that I made that got me to that intersection. I'm thankful. I truly am that he didn't make it to 24th Street and Thomas and kill somebody's grandparents or, wo or a woman with their kids. But uh, he was an Ill illegal immigrant. So the, in, in with time served in 2001, the trial was in 02. He got sentenced to 12 years. He spent 10 years and I got, I still have the email. It's the best email ever. It came from ICE and it said, hey, Jason, uh, today Rogelio Benavides Gutierrez was released from prison. We escorted him across the border in Nogales. Hope you're doing well. And that was it. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a true cop thing to, to, to say that. Like, I'm just going to state the facts. And, and that was it. I, 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 I laugh whenever I read that email once in a while. But, uh, you know, I, I truly mean this. I hope he's out. He had three kids also that he greatly changed their lives. They had to grow up without their dad. Mm -hmm. And I hope now, 10 years later, from his release, that he's out there living a productive life somewhere sure yeah sure yeah it's uh i mean it is a a powerful story all the way around and and i do want to want to get into uh your injuries a little bit sure so t tell us about uh i mean you said was it 50 56 surgeries all told 56 surgeries i uh 43 burn uh from the neck up fourth degree which down the last because the, the, the body, body has different percentages assigned to it. I it, was I was an EMT exact, for four years, is, but it was a long time it ago. It is weird how they did. Yeah, when they came up with the forty three percent, I'm like, it doesn't look like forty three percent of my body because I'm a pretty decent sized guy, and and most of my body is not burned. Right. It's the shoulders to the hands, the very tops of my thighs, and then from the neck up. Okay. Uh, and the neck up being the worst. Uh, shoulders to my hands were pretty bad because, you know, when I was knocked unconscious, it was just my hands just kind of dropped into my lap. I got and you. I was just sitting there unconscious. So the vest protected my torso and then uh, my arms and my hands. Uh, but, I mean, I have, like, I can still see where I was wearing my watch. Oh, okay. It, okay. It's not burned at all. Um, and most of my skin grafts on my arms. I've gotten covered up with tattoos, but uh, I'm not ready to do the Mike Tyson thing yet and cover up the, the facial scar. Sure, the sure. Um, and other than that, I had two crackers and mild concussion, which is amazing because if you've seen the car and it's all over the internet, you type in my name, you can see the car. Um, and to be hit at 115, if that car doesn't catch on fire, I go home three hours after the accident, maybe. Yeah. And take a week off work. With some cracked ribs. Yeah, and, yeah. are you kidding me? And a concussion, big deal. That's that's what's amazing. And that's what I tried to tell Ford in the beginning. I'm like, hey, instead of being assholes about this and not caring about other human beings, you should be touting the safety of your car. Look at, I was hit at 115 miles an hour. And if that car didn't catch on fire, I was... Not, I would have walked away. That that's something you guys should be proud of. Instead of 
you know, saying that we're doing, you know, we're doing something wrong. And, and my case at 115, you know what, if you want to say, what do you expect when you get hit at that speed, your car's getting catch on fire? Fine. Say that. But then again, with educating yourself, go look at all the officers who have died and every one of them was hit at 65 or less. They were hit at highway speeds or they were hit at regular speed limits on roads. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know mine was ridiculously high, but that was an anomaly and I survived. These other officers were, it doesn't take, you know, 40, 45 miles an hour into the back of a Crown Vic. The gas tank is behind the rear axle. It has nowhere to go. It gets punctured, gas comes out, and that's what's going to happen. It's going to explode. Well, sure. Explode is not the right term. It's going to burst into flames is the correct term. Right. Not the first. <laughs> I, have to, I have to use that so I don't get corrected. It did not explode. It burst into, burst flames. into flames. It burst into flames. Yeah. And it, it, well, and it's not like Ford, didn't Ford have issues with the Pinto? Wasn't that oh, one of their cars? Yeah. Yeah. They, that was back in the 70s. You think you'd fucking learn where to not put the gas well, tank. Well, you know what's crazy? The first police officer to ever get rear ended in a Crown Vic and catch on fire happened in Dearborn, Michigan. Where they make the damn thing. Where they make the car. <laughs> you can't even make that up. I mean, that's as bad as Officer Potter doing a weapons misidentification 10 miles from where Derek Chauvin's on trial. That was yeah. the one that was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Of all places in the yeah. country, this couldn't have happened. That's just bad luck. This couldn't right? happen somewhere else. <laughs> but yeah, Dearborn, Michigan was the first officer we're going to catch on fire right in Ford's, like you could see the plant from where his accident was. So... Yeah, they, uh, that was a tough fight. And they quit making the car uh, 2011. And, I mean, they're still out there a little bit because there's 350,000 of those cars. Mm -hmm. And a lot of taxi cabs yeah. are still yep. Crown Vicks because, uh, you know, cops, when we're done with our cars, we like to auction them off. And somebody buys them, and then they make their little changes, repaint them. Paint them and, yellow. And, and use them. Yeah. Uh, but the as far as law enforcement fires, they, uh, they did slowly – wind down and come to an end and it's it's you know knock on wood it's been a very long time since an officer died in a rear end fuel fed fire in a crown Vic. yeah yeah so. and, ho and hopefully never again i mean Hope, like like you said we we didn't even i drove a crown victoria once did you really and it was only to go and pick somebody up from the vehicle service yard <laughs> and get them back to the station that was it that was the only time i've ever been behind the wheel of a crown victoria mine was in 1996 because uh, again i was not uh, you know, I had 14 months on, I didn't get the brand new sure. cars. I yeah. got, I got the, you got the, I got, FNG the, I got car. the last set of keys that was uh, <laughs> in the little box uh, back then. And now, you know, people are out there driving Tahoes or uh, I don't know. Maybe you guys have some fun. I, I, I see DPS flying around in the, uh, the Dodge chargers. Oh yeah. I used to own a charger. I'm like, God, that'd be so much fun to drive. One of those I, uh, I, I'm now a detective. And, uh, but my last patrol ride was a 2021 or a 20, it was a 2020 F-150, uh, Jesus. twin turbo. Dude, how, I can't yeah. even imagine how much fun that would be. To <laughs> and drive. It, well, and it was funny cause I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't the most senior guy in the squad. It, I was right. the second most senior guy oh, in the yeah. squad, funny enough. Okay. And again, not with very much time on, but it was a weekend swing shift team, mostly new guys. Right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it senior guy drove it. He's like, and he and I both drive pickup trucks. And he was like, yeah, I don't really want to drive this anymore. I'm going to go back to the Explorer because that's what I like. I'm like, all right, my turn. I drove I'll it. I'll take it. Yeah, I drove it for a day. And I was like, you know what? I, I like it. I'm going to give everybody, though, a day to drive it. But those keys are coming back oh to me. Oh, my God. And that, sure enough. so much fun. Yeah, sure enough. I ended up uh, sticking with that F-150. I almost bought one. Uh, uh, 
just ended up with a Toyota because I'm a Toyota guy. Hey, but, uh, don't, you can't buy a Ford. And I'm not don't going to now. Okay. Hell, yeah, I didn't know that they were such assholes about just, all this. Yeah, just, so. <laughs> you can buy whatever you want. Um, yeah, yeah, Toyota, Dodge, Chevy, yeah. GMC, plenty of choices. Plenty of choices plenty out of there. Choices. Get a, just, just don't be one of those guys driving around on a Honda Ridgeline. All right? No, uh, just don't, don't do that. <laughs> dude, I don't even know if I can picture what one of those looks like. No, no thank for, you. For a reason. Yeah, for a yeah, reason. Yeah, exactly. For a um, reason. Let's get into a little bit uh, of, uh, and we're winding down. I know you got yeah. other, other shit to do with your day, but uh, the uh, the charity work and, and your speaking uh, that you're involved with. I remember, uh, oh God, I don't even know. It was it 10 years ago now that I was, I was a fire explorer up in uh, Scottsdale. Nice. And now I'm a police officer. Nice. Insert joke here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I was going to say, you, you what, what, Hard what, what happened? You, yeah, there was, well, there was like six years of testing for fire department. I drove all the way out to Amarillo and tested for Amarillo fire, which okay. Amarillo fire, if anybody's listening, your fucking fire test was like taking the SATs all over again. Phoenix, really? Phoenix fire department's that? test made sense. Like it was like, yeah. th- this is a fire truck. Where does the hose go? It's like, oh, it goes right there. Circle crayon. Okay, sounds good. Amarillo was like, if a subway train leaves Tokyo at 5 a.m. and oh, an aircraft dear. leaves Brazil at 3 p.m., when does the dolphin cry? Like, so you have to be smart to fight a fire in Amarillo. I'll yeah. have to remember that yeah, I, yeah, next yeah. time I'm there. That like, was, you, guys uh, are, you guys are like in Mensa and stuff. You're you're so smart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, yeah, my buddy, a uh, 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 guy named Tim. He and I drove out to Amarillo, uh, got there, went to sleep at a hotel, uh, woke up, took the test. Both subsequently failed said test. <laughs> got back in the car and drove all Not the way back to, be to Arizona. Ashamed of you failing that test, anyway. Uh, but no, there was there was a lot of testing, and then yeah. uh, you talked about dying on the list earlier. I died on the list with where I'm at. I tested in California, uh, and then finally ended up back here in the East Valley. So uh, nice. I'm, I'm where I needed where I needed to be. Exactly. Um, but I do remember being on a golf cart, like transporting somebody with a sprained ankle from the waste management open wasted management open and you were uh you had some involvement with the, the Thunderbirds? i'm one of the Thunderbirds. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. i worked the uh, the golf tournament and i've i've uh the way that group is set up when you turn 45 you go what's called life and so you don't have the same assignments and responsibility but i got to be head of security one year working with scottsdale pd which is a lot of fun and you know the the waste management being open is a the largest sporting event in the world when you go across the six, seven days, 600,000 people. Sure. And, you know, 590,000 of them are hammered. So it's not so much a golf tournament as it is a crazy party. And it's just fun to watch. I uh, ran somebody's foot over they, with one of the golf carts and I wasn't invited well, back. Well, I'm glad so. it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> yeah, things happen out there uh, on a regular basis. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I used to love being out there and working it. It was fun. And again, doing the, like I was in charge of parking one year, which is, uh, just, just a nightmare pure, it was but it's pure entertainment because uh people again they're either getting arrested for being drunk or they lock their keys in their car when they pull up to the valet and then you got to try and get a tow truck in and it was just all these things that i'd sit there on my golf cart shaking my head like wow you people are are entertaining but it's a it's a fun event every year and the 16th hole it's amazing that's cool that you worked it though yeah yeah i did yeah. uh did two years and then yeah after i ran that guy's foot over yeah yeah, yeah. yeah you don't that. get to come back don't get to come back no. and hopefully 
that guy's not. There's listening. no second chances <laughs> out no, there. No. Once to you're, once to you're, be fair, I was transporting a medical victim or a medical patient, uh, and uh, he was literally playing chicken with the golf cart, walking towards me, doing that like side to side, which oh, way yeah. you gonna go thing. Yeah. And he went one direction, and I went whatever direction ran over his foot. So. Well, and he was probably a three zero. Oh, and he was drunk. Yeah, so shit. I mean, what what the hell? And I don't even know. There, like no discipline came from that. I, you know, I joke that I wasn't invited. Yeah, you back just don't get that, to come back. You just don't get to come back. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I did. I, I do that, and then uh, the Hunter Club, the Arizona Vern Foundation. Um, you know, the, the obvious ones, of course. Sure. And then my public speaking uh, that that took years to learn how to speak and for my story to evolve. But now it's something I love. And pre COVID I was, I think in 2019, I did 75 across the country and obviously been shut down the past year, but yeah. it's starting to open back up. I'm good. Good. I'm leaving in a couple of weeks to do the women's leadership law enforcement from the, the like the entire state of Wisconsin. Is oh, cool. The conference. And then I'm going to Biloxi, Mississippi, May 17th. So uh, starting to get back on the road, get back on airplanes, do what I love. And yeah, it's, uh, and be an empty nester soon. Gonna be a grandpa in July. Hey, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yeah. My daughter, we started young. She's 27, been married three years, lives in Texas. And, uh, it's going to make me a, a grandpa at a young age. And I, I could not be more excited. Yeah. So, uh, life's beautiful, man. Good, good. Yeah. Glad to hear it. Things are good. Uh, you did have a, a powerful, uh, I, I Instagram stalked the shit out of you over this past week, knowing that you were coming down here. Um, <laughs> so basically doing what detectives do, right? right? Exactly. You know, just, just doing my exactly. thing. Um, and you had an extremely powerful post on there about, and I'm not even going to try and quote it directly, but about waking up with the, uh, you had the, the angel and the demon on your shoulder. And it was something like 17,000 and some odd days where you knew who had won and you knew who was going to continue to win. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I put that on a couple of years ago and I, I actually went on to the, to Google and I said, I was born November 3rd, 1972. How many days have I been alive? And it, it rattled off 17,000 something. And so, yeah, I wrote this whole thing about, cause you do, you wake up every day and that's what you're faced with is, uh, your angels and your demons. And we go through an, uh, the day, no matter what happens, we're, we're constantly battling the negative thoughts and the positive thoughts, being, mm -hmm. being inspired or being, uh, you know, set back and, and wanting to, to quit for a couple minutes. And, uh, I wanted to, to make the point of that, like, you know what, by the end of the day, uh, my better angels win. And I put like, you know, 17,000, uh, wins and demons zero and, uh, look forward to tomorrow. Cause I know as soon as I wake up, they're both going to start yeah. jacked on at each other. And that's, uh, that's the way the days that's go. Just the way it happens. And so I thought it was, uh, uh, important to share that in the way. I mean, I, I made it obviously a little dramatic and colorful, but it, it's true. And when you wake up every day, that's what you're, uh, you're faced with. That's what you're going to get. You're going to get hit with, uh, throughout the day. And especially as police officers, uh, especially in today's world, when you go to work, dude, I, you still got to remember you get to go home mm -hmm. tonight. You still got to be safe and tactically sound. You still have to serve the community while you're battling. Well, who's filming this? Who's going to sue me? What's the, what's the news going to say? What's my Lieutenant going to say? And if you let those things, you know, weigh on you, you're you're hurting yourself you're not getting the most out of the job you're not helping other people and your safety is 
is diminished. And it's a very difficult thing right now, I think. For, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm glad I'm not out there. I, I don't know. Well, of course, I'm old now. But I don't know if I'd want to be a patrol officer right now because it's tough. And I think it's important to don't just be like, you know, I go to the gym every day, so I'm tough. And uh, I'm not worried about losing a fight. Fine. But all that's well and good. But, you know, like you, you're a husband, you're a father, you're a cop, you have other family members, I'm assuming, you have parents, mm-hmm. and hopefully still alive. You, I don't know if you have siblings, you have, you have friends that are going through things. You, it's okay to have these emotions. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to quietly think things that, I mean, I think things all the time that I would never share with other people it's okay to do that and you know let your angels and demons go at it and like i guarantee the angels are going to win they they just they will yeah yeah i think it was uh uh, Marcus Luttrell wrote in, oh, in one of his books that the best absolutely that, Love that, that guy. it's okay to think about quitting it's just not okay to quit exactly you can think about it just it's natural just to think about it. it just it don't sure do it it is because it'd be a lot easier than what you're going through yeah and even in, you know whether it's injuries or just the day-to-day stuff or do I want to work off duty today so I can pay that bill or go on vacation and Standing in front of an asphalt machine when it's 112 is is not the funnest. It's not thing to not do. exactly on the recruiter. No, it's or, it's not. No. And you don't want to get out of bed <laughs> on your day off and go do it. But you know what? Go do it because it makes your family better and it also helps other people. Sure, it keeps the public safe. It keeps the uh, construction workers safe. There's a reason those jobs are available. It's not just so you can make 35 bucks an hour or whatever they. Pay. See how old I am? They probably pay it's a lot 55 more now. now God is that? bless. Don't even tell me that. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it was 35 when I was doing it. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's important for people to say, let, just to even quietly to yourself, it's okay to not be okay sometimes, but what am I going to do to get, it doesn't have to be getting through to the next day always. Sometimes mm-hmm. you just need to get through the next hour and and see what you see from there. If, if things are dark and murky right now, just take a couple steps forward and see what you can see. Yeah, so put one foot yeah, in front of the other. Dude, you, what choice do you have? Seriously, what the, you got to live. You got to write your own story and life's going to happen. And yeah. it, it's, it's all coming for us. Absolutely. It, it guaranteed. So thank you. Well, and in, and in closing, man, uh, uh, my, my last question to you is that you have a microphone to the world. Uh, true story. I mean, listeners in Brazil, Australia, Asia, uh, Europe, what does the world need to hear from Jason Schechterly? You know, I would just like something that I've had to learn, uh, both in the harshest of ways and the most beautiful of ways. Don't let the pain of today blind you from the promise of tomorrow. And more importantly than that, don't get caught up in comparing your adversity to somebody else's. It's great to have, respect and compassion for other people. Uh, you know, I can see somebody in a wheelchair and I have a tremendous amount of compassion and the thoughts of, man, I can't imagine. And I wouldn't want to know what that's like, but it doesn't take away from my burn injuries, the way I look, what my eyesight is like, how limited my hands are. I have to live my own life and I'm not going to insult the things that I'm trying to overcome by comparing it. So, and I, and and I done that all the way down to, 
if you have an important meeting to go to tomorrow and you get a flat tire, don't sit on the side of the road thinking, well, at least I wasn't burning like Jason was. No, fix your goddamn tire and get to work mm-hmm. and overcome that adversity for for that moment because guess what? A whole lot more is coming. And whatever it is, no matter how bad it is, if you are alive, and as Marcus Luttrell says, if you're still in the fight, then stay there because yeah. uh, a lot more is coming. So don't let the pain of today bind you from the promise tomorrow is something that I, I think about every day, and I, I just think it is incredibly important. Yeah. Man, so, I, I couldn't agree more with that, right? You're never out of the fight. You're not. Hey, hey if you wake up more, you can draw your own breath. You are not out of it and it's just up to you how you want to handle it and it's okay to not win every single battle it really is it's not it's not the end of the world as long as you're you're still alive you're still in it you learn you grow you get better and then you'll you the winds once they start coming they they usually come in droves yeah 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 well yeah, hell yeah man yeah this has been a great episode. Oh, it's uh, awesome, dude. Jason, Love I talking to you. Appreciate Thank the you. hell out of you coming down, man. I've appreciate uh, you. Uh, you did. You talked to my academy class uh, four-ish years ago now. Uh, what academy class was it? Four nine eight. Jesus. Yeah, they're up into the five five twenty. Oh, I know. Like <laughs> I, I was number seventy one ten, my serial number, and I think Phoenix is up close to eleven thousand. Yeah. I just start gig. If I had a like, if I had a five digit serial number. <laughs> would laugh yeah that's uh that's pretty good well and we're sitting there at my agency we're we're still three digits and it's like i know i'm gonna see four digits oh yeah too long fuck i'm gonna be old it's coming (laughs) it's coming that's for sure uh well this has been another episode of uh of blue line millennial big shout out jason checkerly man thank you again for coming down appreciate Uh, it uh, head on over to the 100 club, uh, just Google 100 club AZ and see what you can do, uh, for them. Uh, with that, we'll see you guys on the next episode. Stay safe. I'll see you on the road.